Would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12? So I uh, picked this passage for for a couple different reasons, two reasons. And so this Sunday is kind of an in-between period. Uh, We're coming off of Thanksgiving, but yet we're about to go into Advent. And so when I was first trying to decide uh, what to preach on with Bill being out, uh, this passage kept coming to mind. Um, Because as you'll see, on first glance, it has a lot to do with giving thanks. And it comes right after the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 11. And so I, I thought that it would merge the two, Thanksgiving and Advent, this passage would. But as I began to study it more, uh, I realized it's so much more than just this in-betweener passage of those two things. And so let me just give you a little bit of background uh, of Isaiah before we dive in. And so you can divide Isaiah into two books. Uh, Chapters 1 through 39, uh, we like to call the book of judgment. Sounds scary. And uh, chapters 40 to 66 are the book of comfort. Kind of what Rusty mentioned, the, the bad news and the good news, right? And so it's within these books, there's even further divisions. And so this first section of Isaiah uh, runs from chapter 1 to chapter 12, which is our passage today. And so what we have in the passage today is this conclusion to the first section of Isaiah. And really, it's the climax of the story that we're jumping into. And so if the name Book of Judgment didn't give it away for you, the, the, the state of things in Israel at this time, it's, it's not good. It's not good. It's bad. And so chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah deal with a whole lot of sins of Israel. There's, there's cold-hearted religion happening in chapter 1. You have, you have God's hatred of idolatry in chapter 2. Then we have wicked and bad leaders, and there's greed. There's, there's people who mock God. And there's this thing that where they call things true that aren't true. There's corrupt justice systems. And the list of sins that Israel commits in chapters one through five of Isaiah is just building this case for what God's going to do in seven to 10. But in chapter six of Isaiah, it shows that even the best of men, the prophet Elijah, he's the best of men, even he is completely undone when he comes to the presence of God, when he looks at his own uncleanliness, which by the way, is like Boromir who's the best of men, but even he couldn't resist the temptation of the ring. So there's the, there's the one uh, Tolkien reference in the sermon this morning. But there's so much more going on in terms of sin in Israel here. And then in chapter 7 to 10 of Isaiah, we see God's righteous devastation on Israel and Judah with the invasion of Assyria and Babylon. And so, the first 10 chapters of Isaiah, things are bad. Things are really bad. And even in the midst of all this bad, we get glimpses of God's grace. Uh, 7.14, we get the promise of Emmanuel, all right, God with us. Uh, 9.1 through 7, the promise of a child that's going to bring redemption. And then in chapter 11, the chapter before our passage today, we have this magnificent, this wonderful picture of the Messiah, Jesus, and the king that he's going to bring in, and it's going to undo every wrong, and he's going to save his people, the remnant. And so it's an amazing and it's an unbelievable story that how bad Israel is, that God is still going to send them a Messiah. He's still going to send them a Savior. And so chapter 12, the one that we're about to read this morning, it's the response of the redeemed to the work of God. So those who have been the recipients of this grace, those who are the recipients of this messianic kingdom that Isaiah 11 is going to usher in, this is their response. 
And it says, we will say in that day, it's this future event, but it's not just for the Israelites here in Isaiah, it's, it's for us too. And so, so we will join in this song. And so what it does, Isaiah chapter 12, is it shows us us at our best. It shows us the future that we have to look forward to. Uh, Ray Ortland, he used to be a pastor in Nashville, he says, that is where Isaiah takes us now. When we consider the grace of God restoring to us what we have bungled and giving us even better than we had before, what shall we say to these things? And so that's a good Pauline question for us to ask this morning, is what do we say in response to these things? And so let's read what our response will be in Isaiah 12, verses 1 to 6. I'll start in verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's, let's ask his help to understand this word better before we talk about it some more. So let's pray. Father, we are sinful people, and even as we read earlier that, that we don't understand, we have a hard time of understanding. And so Father, would you take this passage and that you would uh, speak to us through it, that we ask that we would look past the sins of the one speaking and that you would be exalted this morning. And so Father, we pray for us. We ask that you open our minds and our ears and our hearts to understand this good word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, my all-time favorite Christmas movie is the movie Elf. And so I'm sure most of you have seen it, but it's about this man named Buddy the Elf. And Buddy has this infectious, uh, uh, joyous, joyful, overly optimistic attitude. And he's always excited about everything that he hears. And so I love all of his reactions to, to just all these new experiences that he has. And so there's this scene that shows his reactions, I think, pretty perfectly. And so it's when he first comes to New York, and he goes into the department store during the Christmas season, and the manager of the store, uh, because Buddy's dressed up like an elf, the manager thinks that Buddy is an employee that works there. And so after going back and forth with Buddy about the store being the North Pole, the manager makes this announcement to the whole store, and he says, okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa is coming to town. And if you've seen the movie, you know what Buddy says. He, he's elated and he screams. He goes, Santa, yes, I know him. That was a really bad impersonation of it. He was much more excited than that. But right after that, he meets Jovi. And she's in this bad mood. And he says, uh-oh, looks like someone needs to sing a Christmas carol. And then he gives this iconic line from the movie that I bet almost all of you could finish when I start it. And he says, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loudly for all to hear. And then he burst out into song right there. And he says, I'm singing in the store. And it's not this standalone event in Buddy's life. 
All throughout the movie, Buddy can't control his excitement. He just, he burst out often into song. He, he can't control the excitement that he has over the things that he is hearing. And so have you ever felt like that before? Where, where you just can't control your excitement for something, you just want to burst out. Maybe, maybe you burst out into song like Buddy does. Maybe you heard such great news that it makes you burst out with incredible joy. Well, our passage today is a lot like this. After hearing this incredible news that even though the people of Israel had sinned time and time again, after they've turned to other gods, and after even their best couldn't stand before this righteous and holy God, God would save them anyway. And we didn't read it, but the verse before our passage, chapter 11, verse 16, it says there's going to be a highway that leads out of Assyria for his people, just like there was a highway that led out of Egypt for his people. And it's a highway that's out of their suffering, and it's a highway that's into God's loving arms. And it's a highway that God himself builds, despite their sinfulness. And so after they hear that, that there's going to be this highway out of there, they respond, and they can't contain their excitement, and they burst into song. And so our passage today is this picture into the future. It's a foretaste of what it looks like to praise and thank God for all that he's done. And what we see is we see two songs. There's two songs here. There's one in verses 1 and 2, and there's another song in verses 4 and 5. And so as we look at this passage today, I've got three points for us. Three things that I want us to see from this passage uh, first thing is going to be a personal song. We're going to look at a personal song. The second one is going to be a public song. And the third one is what it produces. So personal, public, and produces. So let's look at our first point this morning, a personal song. And so I mentioned we have two songs here, and they're sung from two different sources. And so let me explain what I mean by this. If you have your Bibles open, take a look at verse 1. And it says, you will say in that day. If you look down at verse 4... The start of the second song, it says, you will say in that day. Now, now the English language is limited here uh, because we use the same word for the second person pronoun, whether it's single or plural. You know, I could say, do you understand that? And in this context, I'm talking to all of y'all. But I could also say that same sentence, do you understand that, individually. And so the word you is both singular, singular and plural. And so, leave it up to the South to fix this problem. We invented the word y'all, the second person plural pronoun. And so in Hebrew, it's much easier to see this distinction. Verse one, it's the singular you. It's talking to an individual. Verse three and four, it switches to plural. And so you'd have something like, with joy, y'all will draw water from the wells of salvation, and y'all will say in that day. And so there's a first song, and it's personal. It's a song for an individual person, a particular person. You as an individual, that's who it's for. And so you can see in verses 1 and 2 when it says, my and I and me, right after it. It's a personal song. And so in this first song, Isaiah is saying, each of you individually will say the following. And so it's like this personal testimony of sorts for us. And so let's look at what the personal song says. Let me read it again. The personal song goes, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So remember, this is a song that's looking forward into the future. 
looking back on what God has done in our lives, giving thanks and praise. And so let's think about salvation for a moment here. If you're a believer, and I were to ask you, what is the thing that surprises you most about your salvation? What would you say? Or if we were to go around town and ask our neighbors and our coworkers, I'd really be curious what they would say. What is the thing that surprises you most about your salvation? Or does anything surprise you about it? What Isaiah would say, the most surprising thing about salvation is that God is your former enemy. Right? They were at odds with God, and now he's their former enemy. His anger has been averted, and now he's the source of comfort for you. Right? His anger's gone away, and now he's the source of comfort. And so Isaiah begins this song here by going right back to what the gospel is, and that it's God saves sinners. Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. And so this is a major tenet of the faith, because if we're left to our own ways, like Rusty read, we have a really big problem. No one is righteous, not one. And the problem for us is our sin. It's a really big issue that we have to deal with and reckon with. And so as we just read, no one is righteous. But God's wrath, it doesn't just dissipate. He doesn't just vanish into thin air. His wrath is still carried out, but it's not carried out on us. It's carried out on another, specifically the Messiah that Isaiah, he goes at lengths to talk about in chapters 40 to 55. And as Rusty read in Romans 5 earlier, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took on our shame, our punishment, and we get clothed in his righteousness. And so do you see the love that God has for sinners? That he would take away the anger that we are justly deserving and put it on his son. We get his righteousness and he takes on our punishment. It's like that well-known Easter song that we sing when it says, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement, can it be, hallelujah, what a savior. And so Isaiah begins his response to the work of God by essentially saying, hallelujah, what a savior. He's taken away the anger that I deserved and he's given me comfort now. And so in the song that your life is writing, is that how it would begin? Maybe you feel like God is distant from you. Maybe you pray for the same thing over and over again and you don't get what you want. Listen to what Ray Ortland says. He says, have you transitioned from being frustrated with a reluctant God who isn't cooperating with your agenda to being comforted by a God who is lavishing you with grace upon grace? And so Isaiah begins at this very beginning by tackling our biggest problem, and it's the problem of our sin and the fact that we're in the crosshairs of God's wrath. But he doesn't stop there. There's a few more things going on here. He says, behold, God is my salvation. What does that mean? Well, we start to see the source of our salvation. And really the big message here is that there's no salvation apart from God. There's no salvation apart from God. And so this is a recurring theme throughout the prophets because the people of Israel, they're, they're prone to look at the strength of the world for deliverance from their problems. Like it happens in Jeremiah, it happens in Isaiah, it happens in Hosea. The people are always looking to the strength of the world to solve their problems. And we do the same thing too. I looked at the Amazon bestsellers for 2023 this week for books, and the number one book in 2023 sold on Amazon was a self-help book. Six in the top 20 
or self-help books or personal growth books. And I'm not saying self-help and personal growth books can't be helpful. Many of them are, but it illustrates the point is that we're always looking for salvation. We're always looking for deliverance in things other than God. Ten steps to a better life. You know, if I just had that job, or if I just had that person or that group of friends, if I just got into that college, if I just got that house, if I just had that experience, then everything would be okay. My life would be fine. But Isaiah here, he's making this point that we can feel secure with God alone. God is my salvation. It's, it's not God plus something else, like we've been talking about Galatians this fall. It's God alone. And it's like he's saying, God is my salvation. He's enough, period, end of sentence. That's all I need. Last thing I'll say here, and I'll be really quick and. He gives us some markers of those who has this God as their salvation. He says, first, they, they trust him. It's just another word for faith. They, ha- they have faith. Uh, the righteous shall live by faith is quoted in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then you have the removal of fear. You know, there's this question in the background, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so the removal of fear... And then you have strength, which is endurance in the face of life. And and wouldn't that be big if that were true, right? That we can have endurance and strength as we face the things of life. You know, I think about that song. It says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Then lastly, there's song. Yahweh is my strength and my song. And so he's saying when we think about the wonder of what God has done, it, it literally causes us to burst out in song, in singing. Uh, John Oswalt, he's one of the leading scholars on Isaiah, he says it this way, he says, for song is the natural expression of the spirit which is free. No spirit is so free as the one which has been discovered that its destiny is not dependent upon striving, but upon rather the infinite power of the Almighty. And so we live in a world where every facet of our lives is striving to prove that we are worth something. But that's not how God operates. There's no amount of striving, there's no amount of grinding that you can do to earn the love of God. Rather, his love is already set on his people and he does the work for them. And so how freeing is that? Uh, How freeing is that that we don't have to strive to earn God's love in a world where we've got to earn everybody's love. We've got to prove our worth. Maybe for the first time in our lives that we don't have to prove our worth. And so how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel that that burden has been removed? Well, Isaiah says it should make us want to burst out into song. That we will respond with joyous singing. And so that's the personal song. The song that each one of us who has faith in Christ. So let's go to our second point, a public song. Public song. So as I said, there's a pronoun switch in verses 3 and 4 to plural. So it's y'all starting here. And he transitions to talking about a community of believers. Not just individuals, but they're all together. They're collectively together. And so those who have sang that first song individually will now sing this new song together, collectively Uh, Alec Motir, he's another fantastic scholar on Isaiah, he says, there cannot be a transformed community without saved individuals, nor can there be a saved individual who is not incorporated into the community. 
There is no such thing as lone wolf Christianity that saved individuals gather together as a community and the community is made up of saved individuals. And so we see this new song of this new community in verses four and five. Let me read it for us. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. And so I really see three things going on here. And the first that he does is that he, again, he gives thanks to God for all that he's done. And again, this is not a new concept here. It's actually the basis for a common New Testament teaching. Uh, Ephesians 5, 19 to 20 says it this way. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. There's that singing again. But he continues, he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's also that exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ in you. The will of God is for us to give thanks. And so this is something that we already know, because we teach our kids this, right? Whenever our kids receive something, we always say, what do you say? And they say, thank you, or thanks, or however they say it, right? But we know that we're to say thank you. And so we have that same calling as children of God to give thanks to him. And we also see here praise. When it says call upon his name, that means to praise him. And so we see the same phrase in 1 Kings, one of my favorite passages, uh, when Elisha is battling the prophets of Baal and he says, you call upon your gods, I'm going to call upon mine. Basically saying, you worship your gods, I'm going to worship my God, and we're going to see which one answers. It also appears in Genesis 12, Abraham, he gets to the promised land of Canaan, he builds an altar, something that's used for worship, and then he calls upon the name of the Lord. He worships him. And so I do appreciate in verse 5 of chapter 12 of Isaiah, it uses common language if it's any confusing to us, and it just says, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. And so in a world and culture that seeks to exalt itself, this is quite countercultural here. And so we see it here again the call to worship God through song, which is why we like to sing songs here. And then lastly, we see a call or a duty to share this gospel with everyone. And so, isn't it interesting that the part of this vision of Isaiah is that the message of the gospel of grace is to be spread throughout the world? It's to be shared with everyone. And so we have this call to mission. And I said just a second ago that we live in this world and culture that seeks to exalt itself rather than God. And yes, our call is to live this countercultural life to that, but it's also to transform the world and the culture and bring it into a better way to live, a better God to serve. And again, it's this picture that, that we are so in love with God's love that we are so in awe of what he's done that we just can't help but tell people. Let me tell you about what he's done for me. So I used to be a history teacher and I taught the American Revolution. And so this reminds me of Paul Revere in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem about his ride where, where Paul Revere is just riding from community to community saying the British are coming, the British are coming. And there's this lesser-known figure named Sybil Luddington. 
And Sybil was a 16-year-old girl, and she had a ride of her own. It said when the British were attacking Danbury, Connecticut, she climbed on her horse, and she rode it all through the night, exclaiming that the British were attacking Danbury. And she went more than double the distance Paul Revere went. She went about 40 miles in one night on horseback. It said after the war that George Washington came and visited her to thank her for delivering that message. And so I kind of picture this to be like this call of Paul Revere, Sybil Ludington, where we make our ride proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Right? We, just, we just can't help it. We're, we're going every house, door to door, talking about what God has done for us. And so there's so much more I can say about this, but for time's sake, I, I really, can't, really can't get into it. But I'll just say this. You don't have to go into full-time mission to fulfill this calling. Now, it's fine if you do. It's great if you do, but it's not what it's talking about here, is that you can be engaged in this mission right here in Tupelo, in your neighborhoods, in your office, at the soccer field, through building relationships with people, being there for them when tough times arise, showing kindness, and opening that door to share the gospel with them about the work of God through the perfect work of His Son, Jesus, and that everyone who calls upon His name will be saved. And so it's a high calling for us, and it's a duty that each one of us has. We're not exempt from that. For being honest, that might even be a little daunting for us. Might be a little scary for us to do that. But remember the first song that we sang. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. Surely he would give you strength to share that message of his grace to other people. So we've seen this personal song. We've seen the personal song that flows into a public song. Let's look at our third and final point, what it produces. So why does all this matter? Like, like, what's the net effect of this? What does it change in our lives? Well, I think we see the product of these two songs in verse 6. Let me read it. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now, I, I don't know why the text is divided up like this in our English Bibles, and different translations actually differ on this, but if you were to look at your Bibles, you would think that verse 6 is a part of that second song, the way that the indentions are done. But I tend to agree with Alec Motier in that it seems to go back to this voice of the narrator that we see in verses 1, 3, and 4 when he's giving instruction, like he's addressing the people when he's talking about the inhabitant of Zion. And so if that's the case, then I see something else happening here, and it also happens in verse 3. I'm not sure if you noticed, we didn't touch on that verse yet, but when we look to the future and we see that we're thankful for and we praise God for all that He's done, we also see that it produces something within us. And so it's that faith in Jesus produces joy, happiness. If you look at verse 3, it says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Verse 6, sing and shout for joy. And so it's this concept of joy that I think is often slept on in the Christian faith. Right? But really deep down, it's one of the hallmarks of the faith. Uh, John Trapp, he's this Puritan scholar. John Trapp said, no duty is more pressed in both Testaments than this of rejoicing in the Lord. It is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. 
Westminster Shorter Catechism places joy as one of the primary privileges of life as the Christian. I can ask you the question, and most of you are going to know it, but what is the chief end of man? What is his primary purpose? It's to glorify God and to what? To enjoy him forever. Our chief end is to have joy. To glorify God, enjoy him forever. Uh, personally, I love Jeremiah Burroughs. He's, he's my favorite Westminster divine, one of the guys that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith at the assembly. Because all these divines wrote all these different treaties, treaties and things about theology that are really important, things about church government that are also really important. But Jeremiah Burroughs was this guy who wrote on the happiness of the Christian, right? How can we be happy? And like, why is that important? We sleep on that. Derek Thomas points out that it was a part of God's plan from the beginning that we should know joy. Sin spoiled it. Salvation restores it. It was always God's plan for us to have joy. And it's this thought that rings even greater in John 17. Jesus, the high priestly prayer, he's in the garden. He's about to be betrayed, arrested, crucified. And so he prays this prayer in John 17. And right in the middle of the prayer, what do you think is there? It says, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus himself prays that you would have his joy. When Paul is listing what the core of Christianity is in Romans 14, 7, he lists joy right next to righteousness and right next to peace. He says those are the three marks of the Christian. Righteousness, peace, joy. Happiness. And so why is that we're able to have this joy as Christians? Well, look at the last line, Isaiah 12. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The only Holy One in the entire universe, y'all, wants to be in your midst. He wants to be with you. And that's the whole point of Him revealing Himself to us, right? He could have just been distant. He could have created the world and left. But yet He revealed Himself to us. In the Old Testament, he dwelled among us in the tabernacle. In the New Testament, he dwelled among us through the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, he dwelled among us through the incarnation of Jesus. And now he dwells among us through the Holy Spirit. And so this once seemingly distant God has now come home to live among his people. And what Isaiah is saying is that the single greatest cause of joy that we could ever have, that God wants to be with you, sinners. I'll close with this. My single favorite thing that I read about this passage is where my title of this sermon came from. John Oswald, he says that here in chapter 12, after we see this glorious vision of the Messiah in chapter 11, he says, Isaiah envisions a day yet to be when a restored people will in hilarious celebration delight in their only asset, the Holy One. Hilarious celebration, delighting in their only asset, the Holy One. So my question for you this morning is that at the end of our lives and for all eternity, do you know that you will have only one asset? Do you know this true unbridled joy that Jesus brings? And doesn't drinking with joy from the water in the wells of salvation sound a whole lot better than the stagnant pools that we often wade in? Let me pray.